One, Baltimore. This is how it started. At least this is how it came to me over the telephone, 6.30 a.m. from a local health official, trying to keep it together, fighting against little sleep and a ballooning fear that this might be the big one. A week and a half before, 4.15 p.m., a 31-year-old white woman presented to the emergency department with a sore throat, muscle pain in her legs and back, and a dry cough. She had a slight fever. The staff doctor thought it was garden variety flu, gave her some fluids and Tylenol, and sent her home. Three days later, she was back at the hospital. The pain in her throat was worse. Her tonsils were engorged and flaming red, flecked with pus. She'd added a good two degrees to the fever. This is Celsius now, so she's up to about 104 Fahrenheit. And a collection of new, disturbing symptoms. Abdominal pain, diarrhea, bleeding gums, bloody nose. Rectal exam showed bright red blood, indicating hemorrhage in the lower gastrointestinal tract. She had severe pain in the muscles of her neck and back. The guys in the ED tapped her spine, analyzed her blood, and started her on IV fluids. She was beyond emergency room help, so they admitted her to the hospital. The docs upstairs swabbed the throat, took blood, and tried to culture some bacteria, ran Eliza's to find viral antibodies. No luck. They kept pumping fluids, balancing her electrolytes, and generally giving her what we call in the trade supportive therapy. It's what you do when you can't do anything else. A day later, another young woman presented to the same ED with flu-like symptoms. Aches, fever, dry cough. Again, fluids and Tylenol, and the emergency medicine doc sent her home. The next day she was back. Abdominal pain, muscle aches, high fever, vomiting, sore throat, some bleeding in her gums. They admitted the woman and contacted the local health department. Still, though, no red flags went up. Until the next day, when the skin of the first woman began to slough. It started as petechial hemorrhages, pinpricks of blood under the skin, a sign that tiny capillaries were leaking and bursting. But the pinpricks grew quickly into patches. The patches lifted off the underlying tissue, leaving raw, bloodied ulcers. Then, early that morning, just after midnight, another young woman came into the emergency room. She, too, complained of flu-like symptoms, and she was scared. It seemed that she lived with the woman who first presented, who was upstairs shedding her skin. In the third case, the woman wasn't sent home, but was immediately admitted. That was at 2.41 a.m. Four hours later, I was taking it all in from Dr. Herbert Verlock. Verlock was rattled, and anything that rattled him, an ex-army doc, rattled me. As he rambled on, I could almost hear his mind ratcheting through the possible diagnoses for these women. Lassa fever, Ebola, Marburg, or one of the myriad other nasties against which we're trying to protect the public. You tell yourself that the likelihood of it being anything really bad, or worse, really bad and intentional, is pretty damn small. But that pretty damn small chance is what we're paid to watch for, and paid to stop if we can. I wondered how Verloc slept at night. Anyway, I sleep like shit, so I'd been up for two hours by the time his call came. Before I was off the mobile phone, I was in my car, speeding through Baltimore's early morning rush, a tight feeling in my gut that this was not going to turn out well. Joshua Spinogel is a student at Stanford Medical School. His first novel is Isolation Ward. Welcome to the program, Joshua. Thanks, Rick. Joshua, this novel is an interesting combination of noir and medical thriller. Now, both of those subgenres of mystery require some conventions, and yeah. I'd like you to talk about how you, as a writer, dealt with some of those conventions and when those conventions worked with one another and when they fought against one another. Well, you're right. There are definitely conventions you have to fall for each of these types of genres. And for the, for the medical thriller genre, well, you need doctors, generally, or some sort of health professional. You need either a virus or bacteria, some sort of infectious outbreak, some sort of disease, some sort of medical device or scientific research that's gone awry, and you need bad guys. And this takes place all in the world of medicine, all in the hospital world, the um, biotech world, depending on what you choose. But you, need to, you, you do need to hit some of those points, and you need some of those elements. For the noir sensibility I was going for, I, I think the most 
Well, there are two things that I really tried to concentrate on. One was the character, and I really wanted to bring a noir sensibility and really pump up the character of Nate McCormick, who's the protagonist. To get the noir sensibility, I wanted to make Nate complicated and complex. I wanted to make him a bit of a misanthrope, um, not entirely comfortable either in his own skin or in his environment. And secondly, I think that noir really deals well with place um, for genre fiction. So you have Dashiell Hammett, who uses San Francisco. You have Chandler, who uses L.A. And I really wanted to treat place as a character. And Nate has a long history, a long tortured history with place. And this place is the Bay Area in this book. As for working together, they, they worked really well together, I found. Um, you know, as I kind of plumbed deeper into each of these genres, I found out that there was a nice kismet between the two of them. I didn't really see them working so at odds. Perhaps the only way they worked at odds is that Nate is in a really hierarchical and really institutional environment, whereas, you know, you have Sam Spade, who's kind of out on his own. He puts up his shingle. He's a detective. He doesn't really have to pay attention to a hierarchy. And as, you know, you can read in the book, Nate does have a little trouble playing with others and bucks up against the hierarchy. Tell us a little bit, let's ratchet back a bit, and talk a little bit about your background, both as a writer. How long have you been writing? Is this something new that you started? And tell us a little bit. You're still in medical school, right? I am still in medical school. This is pretty amazing. So tell us a little bit, first, about your beginnings as a writer. I've, I've been writing for a long time. I was read to as a kid. I wrote a uh, five-page fantasy novel <laughs> in uh, fifth grade and then wrote skits through high school, but didn't consider myself... Well, I think I considered myself a good writer until I got into college and just got kicked all over campus for both my, my nonfiction writing and my um, fiction writing. But I really learned craft in college, and I discovered Raymond Carver, which was a huge moment for me, and probably read Raymond Carver too much and too diligently and started writing like Raymond Carver, but it was an important exercise to go through. And then following college, I took some years off between college and medical school. I wrote a lot of literary, short literary fiction, had two pieces published in small literary journals, one of which isn't around anymore. What journals? One was called Tribe, and that's, that was out of Louisiana, out of New Orleans, and that's no longer around. And the other was called The Sonora Review. And then I wanted to try my hand at a novel, but I didn't feel... I felt neither the pull towards writing a big literary fiction type novel, and I felt that I needed some of the constraints and the structure afforded by genre fiction to actually sustain, you know, three, four hundred, five hundred pages. And then when I got some interest in medicine, I was working in bioethics for a time and then applied to medical school, I felt like I found my genre. Now let's let's step back here for a second. This is sure. pretty interesting. You graduated from college, and you took some time off. Yes. You went into bioethics. That doesn't seem like something you, quote, go into. Tell us, <laughs> tell well, us a little I, bit about how you got involved in, in the bioethics profession. Well, I was, uh, I was acting in New York for, uh, for a few years and with every intention of going to law school and worked in the, um, the legal field you know, as a non-lawyer for a little while, was working at Miramax, a film company, and then decided you know what, uh, maybe the law is not for me. So I started volunteering in hospitals, and that led to bioethics, sort of a more intellectual engagement with medical ethics and with the th sort of thought behind what was happening in science and technology and medicine. As for just going into bioethics, 
I sort of did just go into bioethics. I walked into the, uh, the center in Philadelphia and said, you know, here I am. I can do some research for you guys if you want to have me. If you can pay me, great. If not, I'll just do um, some volunteer work. They allowed me to do some volunteer work, and then I ended up getting paid as a, uh, as a researcher. You're working in bioethics. Mm-hmm. Then you start medical school. Yes. Tell us a little bit about what it's like to start medical school after coming out of bioethics and a little bit about, so you started at Stanford? I started at Stanford. It was a bit of a gear shift for me from from bioethics. I'd been doing some research with my principal investigator, whose name is Glenn McGee, in hospital ethics committees, which isn't really the stuff of thrillers. But one thing that working in medical ethics and bioethics gave me is kind of a sensibility about what are the important issues and how to look at ethical issues. That is not organic chemistry. It's not molecular biology. It's not anatomy. So it was a bit of a transition to start studying the hard sciences. And I did. I had to go back during, during the time that I was at Penn and doing some part-time work in the research there and take uh, and take all my pre-medical classes. So I was a little bit in that, in that mode. I had had physics under my belt and organic chemistry. But when you're living and breathing you know, biochemistry and molecular biology for a year, it, it was kind of a shock. I, I didn't do too much writing during that, uh, during that first year. So when did you start writing and why did you start writing? It's sort of hard to explain why other than I would read a book or I would see a movie. What would you read? I mean, what were you reading? How could you have time to read fiction when you're in med school? That's an interesting... Well, I I was always able... You can always squeeze some time in, you know, that 15 minutes before you fall asleep. There's always time to to do a little reading of fiction. It's either more or less, depending on what you're doing. But then in that summer between my um, first and second years, that's the only summer we have off in medical school. I spent the first part of the summer coming up with the outline for this book and doing a lot of doing a lot of reading and a lot of reading thrillers and noir and that got me reconnected with words and stories. Um, and then after a month of that, I sat down and wrote the rough draft of Isolation Board. And this is while you're in medical school. This is while I'm in medical school in that first free summer. So I got the rough draft done during done during that uh, first free summer. And then over the next 15 months, it was, it was a slog the whole time. The rough draft I wrote in two months, and that was hard. And then it was hard to edit while being in classes. You know, a lot of work before class, a lot of work after class. You know, my weekends were mostly shot. And then I, did, I took a year in the lab and continued to do some editing and rewriting. And I would write you know, between experiments. Lab, the lab schedule is a little more flexible. Tell us a little bit about how that feels to go back and forth between writing fiction about medicine and learning about being a doctor, learning to be a doctor. How does that feel, and how does that, how do those things inform one another? Pretty disjunctive on a day-to-day basis. You know, you're sitting down for two hours and writing, and then you, you step into your class, and it's, it's a little tough to switch gears. Also, as you're learning new things, you realize what you wrote three months before is totally wrong, so you go back and rewrite that. Um, so there's a constant, uh, constant um, absorbing of new information and then incorporating that into, into your fiction. I do like how these two careers work together. Medicine is a nice break from the, from the solitude of writing. It has an intellectual rigor and a collegiality 
that's a bit different than writing. And writing is a great way to process the ideas, the conflicts, the uh, information that you get into medicine. So I've been very happy with the way those two worlds have, have meshed. It's, it's a time issue, and it's hard <laughs> sometimes. This is fascinating because there are it's seemingly a plethora of doctors who write, and it's interesting yeah. to find out why exactly these two fields work so well together. Now, did you workshop this book? Were you sitting? How did you? The mechanics of having writing this. Did you just sit down and do it completely in isolation? Did you show people? I did. I showed. I showed some folks. I have quite a few friends who are writers, so I would show it to them and get feedback from them. After I had the rough draft, the rough draft, both for this book and for the next book that'll be coming out next year. I kind of write those more or less in isolation just because the story has a momentum of its own and you don't necessarily want to be looking back to page 30 when you're on page 180 because one of your friends or your editors said, well, it doesn't really work here. You want to kind of treat it as a full as, as a full motion or full movement. So I've been very lucky to have friends that I can use as editors. And then my agent was, was a great editor. So it's not completely in isolation. I mean, writing by nature is, is a lot of time alone behind the computer or the typewriter or the legal pad, whatever you choose to use. Tell us a little bit about some of the the basic setup of the book, as much as you're comfortable t- talking about, because we don't want to spoil okay. the surprises for readers. The book opens in Baltimore, and there's an outbreak of this pretty graphic and heretofore unidentified disease. Nate McCormick, who's the protagonist, is an officer in the Epidemic Intelligence Service, which is um, part of the CDC. And he's in Baltimore, happens to be in Baltimore, setting up a surveillance program for disease. It seems that these, these cases are connected. And Nate finds out that all the, uh, the women who first present were members of group homes for the mentally, uh, mentally impaired. He follows up on this and ruffles quite a few feathers in doing so and then is kind of shunted off to California to follow up on what looks like a really flimsy lead. Surprise, surprise, it's not a flimsy lead. And that brings him into conflict not only with the action and the disease outbreak itself and other aspects of the disease outbreak, how it came about, et cetera, but also it brings him into contact and conflict with a lot of people women from, uh, from his previous life. Nate has a, has a history in Northern California, a very besmirched and dark history. So the last place on the planet he wants to go is Northern California. And in some ways, the last people he wants to see are the people that he's coming in contact with. You mentioned earlier about how important place is, and it's very important in this novel. You do a great job of creating the various places. Thanks. Did you live in Baltimore? I grew up in York, Pennsylvania, which is about 40 minutes north of Baltimore, okay. and lived in D.C., and dated somebody who was in Baltimore. So I was pretty familiar with the, uh, with the city. Tell us a little bit about your impressions of Baltimore. It's not really well, it's not a happy place in the novel, <laughs> and it seems, it's, but it does seem a perfect place to start a kind of noirish mystery. Yeah. I really have a soft spot in my heart for Baltimore. The city has a lot of challenges. But it is, it's a fantastic city. As I said, I, I like it a lot. And I think, and Nate likes it a lot, too. He likes, he, he likes some of the grit and uh, some of the things that uh, a lot of people don't like about Baltimore. I wanted to have the outbreak start in a place, A, that I knew well, 
and B, that would present certain challenges. You know, this is, as I said, it's a city with a lot of, with a lot of challenges and obstacles facing it. And it has some infrastructure problems, things like that. So to have um, Nate try to sift through all this, I thought was, was interesting. And I think Baltimore, which occupies uh, in the public mindset one, one place, which is an eastern city, a former industrial city, is a nice counterpoint to the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, and to a lesser extent, San Francisco, which in some ways seen the antithesis of Baltimore. Maybe it's not Scottsdale versus Baltimore, but it's, um, they're on pretty opposite ends of the spectrum in some ways. I found it interesting how much your protagonist disliked the Bay Area, disliked coming back to it, as I yeah. knew you are actually located here. So tell us a little bit about how do you feel about the Bay Area, and how did, tell us about how you feel versus how you wrote about it, your character feeling about it. I, I love the Bay Area and would like to be here if it weren't so expensive and real estate was a problem. And we'll try to be here for, um, for residency if that works out. In that sense, I'm different than Nate McCormick. One thing I did want to focus on or at least touch on was I feel that there's kind of a vibe in the Bay Area, which is why would you live anywhere else? You know, this is the greatest place in the face of the planet. Yeah, that, that might be true, but it's... No, it is true. Yeah, of course, of course. But people do live in other parts of the country, and they do enjoy those other parts of the country, and they have, they have fun, and they are happy people. And there are beautiful parts of Pennsylvania and Maryland. And I think I wanted to tap into, tap into that, that great weather and access to the coast and wineries and things like that don't necessarily are not all the contributors to place and history is is a big is a big contributor to one sense of place and that plays out in in a big way in Nate McCormick but yeah I love the bay area let's talk a little bit about Nate particular as a protagonist for both the medical thriller and as a noir protagonist he's an excellent noir protagonist because he's a backstabber, he's a liar, he's yeah. a cheater. <laughs> well, in a good in a good way. <laughs> in the best possible way, yes. He describes himself as mostly angry. Yeah. <laughs> and, and but that doesn't necessarily make him a good candidate for being a doctor. And so tell us a little bit about how you developed this character and based on both yourself and, and how you differentiated yourself Tell us a little bit about creating this character for both worlds. Okay, well, first of all, I I should say that Nate and I are different. And I think sometimes uh, my mom has trouble seeing the difference. And she (laughs) she read the book and is saying, Josh, why did you do that? Why are you so angry? We are different. And Nate's relationship, for example, with place or with medicine is much more complicated and fraught than mine. He's not the do good or doctor. I mean, he does good, but he does bad to do good. And he comes into conflict with medicine in doing that. And I wanted to plumb the complexity of his uh, sort of his relationship with medicine because we have this we have this sort of public archetype. And I think it's been exploded in good ways by some television shows. ER has been, I think, particularly good. Even uh, there's a new show called House, a relatively new show called House, and that's an ex- acerbic, sarcastic doctor. I actually thought of that show as I read this book. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah, people have, people have drawn parallels between Nate and Dr. House. We have this idea of the doctor, which is starting to uh, be exploded a little bit, as this kind of do-gooder who is super moral 
and super brave, almost like a, you know, a superhero. And, you know, doctors are people too. They have, they have tensions, they have regrets. Uh, Nate, for example, his, his path in medicine was not a straight arrow. He had some significant problems with his career in the Bay Area and felt lucky to get back into medicine and to be given a second chance, but it doesn't by any means mean that he's changed. I think one thing I wanted to explore is the tension between him trying to change and striving to change and not quite being able to change, especially vis-a-vis his, um, his relationship with, uh, with medicine. Now, is Nate the hero of your next novel? Yes. Okay, so did you conceive of him as a series character? Say, I'm going to write a series of novels about this character, and I want to give myself some room to explore? No. I actually, I began a second novel shortly after finishing this one. Just wanted to go straight into a second one. Completely different characters, completely different medical scientific milieu. But I could not get Nate McCormick's voice out of my head. He was just there knocking constantly. So... I um, decided to return to Nate McCormick, McCormick, felt there was a lot left to mine in, uh, in terms of his character. He does find himself, as you can imagine, in conflict with himself and uh, with the Bay Area and with his uh, um, colleagues in the next book. Tell us a little bit about this character who understands diseases but not people. I wanted a character who whose relationships with people were full and conflicted. His relationships with disease are relatively clear. And it was interesting for me to to have this character who kind of wishes that his relationships with with people were like his relationships with disease. You know, there was a bright line between good and bad and, you know, disease bad, health good, and not so with people. And he tries to, to march to this drummer and finds that people and agendas and their relationship with him are much more dangerous in some ways than disease. As for the noir the noir aspects bubbling up through this book. I tried to do it as much as, as much as I could. I was reading quite a lot of Chandler and Hammett before I wrote this book. And what I enjoyed most about um, the characters, you know, Stan, Sam Spade or Philip Marlowe, was that their relationships with people were, were fleshed out, and they were all gray. There were, there were few black and white relationships. And they had an effect on these characters. You know, they weren't just moving through life. You know, these characters were affected by the relationships and were angry a lot of times and mis- misanthropic a lot of times. I also wanted to kind of get a Nick and Nora Charles flair in the relationship between Nate and Brooke Michaels, the other, one of the other doctors in the, in the book. A little bit at each other's throats sometimes, but it's just, if nothing else, it's just a lot more fun than having everything go well except for the bad disease. That's, a, I think, a bit simpler to, to write, and I think at times medical thriller authors fall into that, where it all becomes about plot, and where's the disease going next, and here's the obviously bad character, and here's the obviously good Girl Friday, who's, um, who's the uh, sidekick to the main character. And I wanted to play with those relationships more and kind of explode the story beyond just plot. One of the great attractions of this novel is just this ethics soup 
that you create. <laughs> yeah. you, you have the ethics of the noir detective. You have medical ethics as a doctor. Then you have bioethics as yet another layer of how the society deals with diseases. Right. So tell us a little bit about, let's start exploring the ethical nature of this novel. And first, let's talk a little bit about, since we're talking about noir, the noir ethics. And I have yeah. to ask you, you you're, one of your characters is named Timothy Leary. Yeah, that that <laughs> was just that was that was fun. That, that, that's not a coincidence. Then. It's not a it's not a coincidence. And I just like the the uh, the sort of flow of the name, Timothy Le- uh, Timothy Leary Lancaster. But as for as for the uh, the ethics, the book actually for me got its start in ethics. I was thinking, okay, what's going to be ethically fertile ground around which to build um, around which to build a thriller and. I settled on the um, scientific medical environment of the book, or the milieu of the book, which is xenotransplantation, and that's um, cross-species organ transplantation. And the reason I I settled on that is because the stakes are so high on both sides of the issue. On one hand, you have an acute shortage of organs right now um, for transplantation, nearly 100,000 people on the waiting list and about 13,000 potential donors or donors. And on the other hand, you have this unknown infectious risk. These organs carry some embedded, uh, or these organs carry embedded viruses, things like that. So there's this unknown risk that could unleash something horrible. The the organs from the presumably pigs are... Yes. They're the ones that carry these potentially... uh, catastrophic diseases. Right, these, these, these animal organs. Um, and in the real world, I mean, there are a lot of controls, and this, is, this, is very, this has been mined by a lot of people. It's a, it's a fraught situation that has been thought about by, a lot, by people a lot smarter than I am. The book sort of grew out of that and grew out of this tension because the stakes are so high. As for the medical ethics, I just think it's, it's fascinating when you're in the hospital and when you see patient care and when you see how doctors work, it is not black and white. I mean, it is not simply let's do everything the patient wants. Let's just pursue the disease. And as Nate pursues the disease, he he wants to follow that, you know, disease bad, let's go for it. But he bucks up against a lot of other, a lot of other interests, you know, um, civil rights interests, the interests of people not to be prodded over and examined, things like that. So I found that those those medical ethics, sort of the very human, um, the very human aspects of what is right and what is wrong, pretty fascinating. And and liked how this character, who really wants to cram all of his life into this black and white box, and just keeps finding that it's not black and white. Thought that was very interesting. And as for the noir ethics, I felt that. The medical ethics, when I talk about uh, Nate wanting to make everything black and white and it's not, the noir ethics dovetailed very nicely with that. You have this this loner guy who has a, an idea about the world, but that idea about the world does not mesh that well with the real world and produces a lot of a lot of sparks or a lot of interesting conflicts, you know, both in the traditional um, noirs. And, you know, I hope I was able to achieve some of that in this book. Chandler and Hammett are the giants. They do it very well. So I, I feel, you know, I'm trying to learn as much as I can from those guys. You mentioned earlier that you had considered law for a career. And I find it in, that's, that's quite interesting because the, one of the ethics clashes that you explore a bit is the clash between 
legal practices and medical practices. Tell us a little bit about how you developed that and what bits of your own experience came into that to, to inform the novel. Well, it wasn't too much for my, my work in the legal field. I was looking at contracts for movies and, and uh, you know, fights over contracts about uh, how big somebody's name would be in the credits. So that, that was pretty <laughs> far afield from what, from what happens here. But bioethics encompasses a lot of legal ethics in general. And bioethicists, there are a lot of um, bioethicists who have legal degrees. And when you think about it, these, these two cross all the time. So you have this idea of patient autonomy. What should a patient, what kind of say should a patient have over his or her care? Well, you can say on one hand that patient autonomy should trump everything. And, you know, I should get everything done that I want to get done. Or, you know, in Nate's case, you know, I should be able to do everything I want to do for these patients. Well, Against that is, well, what about the community? What if you're a patient who wants, you know, $5 million worth of um, said care? You know, what are the interests of the community in that? And in Nate's case, it, it does come down in some ways to a civil liberties thing. I think if this is one of the arcs of Nate McCormick, he, he does change through this book and the events really um, sway how he looks at the world. But, you know, in the beginning of the book, he, w- he wishes he were the, um, uh, in some ways, you know, this, this philosopher king where he could take people and just quarantine them by fiat. You know, let's stop this disease. You know, he, on the other side of that, you have, you know, civil liberties interests. You know, do people want to be quarantined? When do you quarantine them? How do you know? And um, this, this is a very gray area and something that I, I now, touch on, but I would like to explore even further. Speaking of quarantine, one of your characters, who's somewhat along the lines of an authority figure, says that quarantines have proved to be effective. This yeah. isn't my understanding, and I'm curious because we have a lot of thoughts about what will happen if, for example, a bird flu pandemic right. strikes. I've heard some authorities say, well, we'll just quarantine these areas, which is frightening from a civil rights perspective. Is it really effective from a medical perspective? Is it realistic to quarantine people? It, it, it is effective, but it's not 100%. I mean, if, and I think the passage that you're referring to, it's a dialogue between his, his mentor and, and Nate. And quarantines, quarantines do work, and, but they're not 100%. And they do work better for certain diseases. For the avian flu, for example, it would be pretty hard because of the incubation time, because of the feared transmissibility of it. But to not quarantine would allow it to spread even faster. So I don't, I don't know exactly what the, the most current thinking is on quarantine. Do you, do you lock down airports? Do you lock down countries? I've heard a lot of different suggestions. But, you know, I think it would not be a difficult decision about quarantining if it were, if it was sure to work 100% of the time. But they are effective, and I think in the case of some pandemic, you know, it's the, there's going to be a very, very, very robust discussion about quarantine and civil liberties. One thing that you explore here, too, is disease is a cause of death versus murder is a cause of death. Yes. And this is an interesting way of, of completely merging the noir thriller and the medical thriller. <laughs> and I thought that was a really great uh, concept. Talk a little bit about that. I did not really want to tell an outbreak story. I wanted to explore an outbreak story but get off of that train. I mean, outbreak stories have been done so well so far by others. 
um, Richard Preston in the hot zone right. tells a, a perfect outbreak story. I, I could never do anything, you know, even approaching that. So I wanted to bring in the mystery aspects of it and the sort of noir aspects of it because I think in some ways disease killing people is not quite as interesting as people killing people because people disease doesn't have a brain so disease doesn't know and then it becomes a question of how do we manage this and how do our organizations and infrastructure try to control and corral the disease which is very interesting but which also was very interesting to me and which I wanted to think about was what about the people making decisions that and wind up with people dead in a real sense like what is what is the moment of those of that decision and what is the justification they use I don't really present black and white characters, at least I don't think I do, in the book. So even the bad guys have a, a reason for, for doing what they're doing. I just thought it was a very interesting because you have this, this same endpoint, which is death, and really interesting to look at the way disease moves through people and harms people and the way people um, harm people. Tell us a little bit, too, about being an insider in writing a medical thriller. Each The medical thriller and a classic mystery each have a certain kind of structure. Mm-hmm. And when you're, like, putting them together, de- gene-splicing them as yeah. you are here. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Tell us uh, how you go about creating the, the strands of uh, DNA and RNA that, that will result in a medical thriller that walks and doesn't have four arms yeah. <laughs> on one side. I, I did not see such a, um, a tension between the two. I saw that the, the medic- medical thrillers have, I think, become, over the years, a lot more, they've, they've followed a pr- pretty strict marching orders. And I didn't see why it needed to be so. So, I, to use your phrase, I gene-spliced a little bit. I, I think that it, you know, we get caught up in or at least I, you know, and I get caught up in like genre. So what does what what points do you have to hit for the medical thriller, and what do you, what exactly do you need? But it's a lot more flexible than that. And you know, I went, I experimented, and I tried to, uh, you know, I tried to splice these two things together and create something not with four arms, but with two stronger arms. <laughs> do a little enhancement, but um, you know, it's I think it's up for um, up for up to readers to decide whether that worked or not. You speak quite a bit in this novel about the medical business. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the ethics of the medical business. And it, it's obviously, a, a, there's a lot of potential in there for human drama yeah. and, and exciting writing as well. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how how much research did you do? How, how many people did you poke? And, and how happy or unhappy are they having now that they're able to view the results of how you <laughs> look at the medical <laughs> business? I haven't had um, I haven't had too many people call me up and let's say there was a contract out on me, so I I, I, I figured that's good. But the the medical business, I mean, so much stuff around medical uh, medical issues and medicine in this country is so is so complicated and so challenging and so morally and ethically fraught. I mean, um, you talk about uh, persistent vegetative state, yeah, and that's obviously a, a huge deal right now. It is, and this was this was written before the um, Terry Schiavo case um, hit the uh, hit the press. But I, I mean, the um, it was boy that seems it seems rather prescient in that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe I got lucky with that one. 
you know, there's, there's there's been a pretty robust debate about patients in uh, pers- persistent vegetative state for the last 15, 20 years, maybe even more. The the elements about people in persistent vegetative states in the book are all based on fact. One of the uh, how, how do you say the sexual perversions is based on a real event back east, um, and the uh, the suggestion to use patients in persistent vegetative states was suggested, perhaps in an offhand way, by a relatively um, preeminent uh, transplant surgeon. As for the business, um, and this is the business of, say, xenotransplantation, the business of drugs and drug development, the interests are at cross-purposes so often. You know, there's so much money flowing around. And uh, there's so many um, political and social players on the scene that it becomes just, it's a minefield. Just think about, um, you know, we have Terry Schiavo. On the other hand, we have uh, pharmaceutical companies. And what about drug development? What are the risks that they're taking? What are, you know, they demanding from society in terms of payment for the drugs and also in terms of some of the basic research that we, that we pay for? There are no white hats in this, and there are no black hats. You know, everybody is... I think in general, trying to do a good job. The question is, who are they trying to do a good job for and what masters are they serving? Yes, whether it's the shareholders or the population at large. Right, right. When you write a thriller like this, the background is very, very important. The social, the political, the technological background. And we're now in a world where we have a Department of Homeland Security, something that Mm -hmm. couldn't have been envisioned, you know, seven, eight years ago. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how these background influences helped shape this and both helped it and hurt it, made it harder to write. Well, I think one, one way that it, that it helped is, you know, in my research about CDC is really seeing the circularity of that, um, of that organization. You know, it was originally conceived to... Circularity? Yeah, sort of. The, the, it's come back to kind of its um, some of its original missions. Okay. So originally, you know, CDC was um, was uh, fighting malaria, and I think a lot of people forget that we had a terrible um, malarial problem in this country through the South and South uh, through the Southern states over through Texas. Um, but they wiped out malaria. Great. And the EIS, um, the Epidemic Intelligence Service, was. Um, created in the 50s to combat bioterrorism. So they were worried about cholera, they were worried about smallpox and anthrax, all these things, a lot of these same diseases that we're worrying about today. You know, we think that this is a, this is a new thing, but it's not a new thing at all. So even institutionally, the history of these, these organizations and these, these government bodies, is, it was very interesting to me and how it's been, how we're now talking about bioterrorism a lot and how it's a, a major concern for the, um, for the healthcare infrastructure and the healthcare uh, governmental bodies. One thing that has been a challenge is things are very complicated <laughs> right now, institutionally and organizationally. I mean, you, you can, there are just so many different different bodies that have different interests. I mean, the FDA, you know, high level, you have Department of Health and Human Services, you have the FDA, you have CDC, now, you know, Homeland Security has sway over some of this stuff. You have um, the Department of Defense, which is interested in some of this stuff. And it's it's mind-boggling about um, some of the, uh, the uh, number of players in this, in this space, the disease outbreak and bioterrorism space is 
what's hard for me to hold in my head, especially when I'm, you know, doing other studying. So I think I shy away from setting everything in Washington. You know, this isn't, I haven't had the, um, the opportunity to write a Tom Clancy book that really plums into the, um, the organizational infrastructure. But this, to, to get back to the, uh, the beginning of the question, you know, this, this current, these current times in which we live are, are um, I think are very good for, for writers. Um, and the change and the flux is, is very good for writers. The uh, risk is that you miss, you know, big change. <laughs> you know, if another department is created tomorrow and, you know, I have a, um, and the book comes out, it's going to be, the, the, the shelf life might be kind of short. One thing that it struck me is, is that these are somewhat unhappy times. Yeah. The world's at war. People are tense. We're worried about pandemics. We're worried about economic problems. And tell us a little bit about how that informs your work as a as a writer of thrillers. Well, I think it makes it, it probably easier, doesn't it? I don't. It actually, for me, it made it harder. I um, I wrote a book right before coming into medical school that was would not was not published. It didn't find a publisher. And uh, it went out to publishers and found no home two weeks after 9-11. And I had a discussion with a lot of my friends who are writers, which is, you know, what's the role of art? Or why are we even doing this? You know, why aren't we working on something more useful? And for a time, you know, for that uh, period, um, September 2001 to when I started the rough draft for this, which was um, in June 2002, you know, I really um, drew back from fiction. You know, I was studying medicine. I could see the um, applicability of that. I could see how it could help the world. But as for writing, it seemed kind of almost frivolous. And telling, you know, telling these stories seemed frivolous. By the end of that time, through a lot of discussions with, uh, with friends who do nothing but write, I did, again, see the value of doing it. You know, I, I think the idea ideal social contribution for a writer is to write some, is to write Saturday by Ian McEwen and really lock horns with the issues in a big way. That's not what I do. You know, I write genre fiction. So I can touch on these and, do, and bring as much of um, my take on things and hopefully present different sides of the issue as I can. But I do have to bow to some conventions and, and keep the story moving. You know, this isn't a, it isn't a treatise. So I think it's it's both harder and it's harder because one doubts the utility of what they're doing. It seems like we, like, as you say, we live in such tough times, scary times. It feels like everything you do should be useful. But I'm actually interested to ask you, Rick, why you thought that it might be easier to write a um, a thriller in these times. Well, to my mind, it seems like it would. Unhappy times make it easier to have unhappy things happen. Yeah. You couldn't, uh, if, for example, we lived in a world where uh, where United States had universal health care. Yeah. True. That would make it, you know, it's it, there's a lot less space for you to work in. There's so right. many gritty places where bad things can happen. Right. You have a lot of opportunity to go in there and and snatch and you take them too I, yeah that's I, very that's very interesting I, I hadn't even I guess I can't even see that utopia 
So, you know, I don't even, at least until this moment, I didn't really even acknowledge all the, uh, all the clay I have to work with because of these, these tough times. But uh, I, I think that's, that's spot on. You know, it just feels like universal health care is such a, is, is so far in the future. I hope not, but. Uh. Let's touch a little bit on some of the lighter parts of this book. One of the things that makes it fun is you have a good sense of humor. And, and <laughs> you got, got a few good jokes and a, and a number of great lines in here. Right. So, so tell <laughs> us a little bit about uh, the, the, the humor, bringing it in, and, and how you worked it out. And is this something, is this, are we seeing uh, the gallows humor of medical school? Yeah, I think a lot of it. A lot of it's there, and I just, you know, funny characters are fun, more fun to read. You know, I think humor goes a long way, especially when you're dealing in dark things. Humor goes a long, long way. So I tried to bring as much of it um, as I could to the book. I just realized too that some of the books that I enjoyed the most were funny. You know, depending on you know, the the story, could be anything from. Uh, I'm thinking now of Nelson DeMille's The Gold Coast, which I, I, I read quite a few times before writing this, where, you know, it has to do with a mobster sort of moving into a, um, to a very, very waspy area. But the, um, the main character is funny. He's very funny. And it gets, it's just a joy to read somebody who makes you, makes you laugh. And I tried to do that. I think it, um, it lightens the mood. It can also, you know, serve as something like, a, you know, in all of, Shakespeare's tragedies, he has these comic relief um, characters, you know, some gravediggers wandering in saying funny things. I, pr- I think it provides an escape valve, too, for, um, for a plot that uh, is clicking along and is, um, doesn't seem to have a lot of room for that and that, as I said before, deals with dark things. One of the comments you made earlier that I found fascinating and I wanted to follow up on was the, the Nick and Nora aspect of this book. Is, tell us a little bit about the women in this book. And <laughs> how you develop them, and, and how you see them fitting into your work as a writer. I, the women were the biggest challenge for me, um, partially because there are three of them. <laughs> so yes. they uh, and Nate needs uh, needed to have specific ideas about all of them and, and different interactions. Like the, the flavor of the interactions with, with each of them, of course, had to be different. You know, he's kind of triangulated between these, these three people or among these three people. They represent both different parts of him in the present day and also uh, different parts of his past. The relationship that I had the most fun writing is the relationship between uh, his not his sidekick, but his fellow his fellow traveler in the investigation outbreak or the investigation of the outbreak, which is uh, um, Brooke Michaels, who works for a public health department in Santa Clara. Um, that that for me was a great joy to to read, and that's kind of the uh, the Nick and Nora relationship. Although they don't drink quite as much as as those two did. Um, Let's hope not. They're yeah, in public health. I know exactly. <laughs> And for the uh, for the old love interest, I wanted Nate to feel both very attracted to her and very repelled, and that's a constant tension through through the book. Or what I tried to make um, I, it remains to be seen how well I did it, but um, I really tried to go for a tension between this, you know, come here, come here, come here, go away, go away, go away, go away, that he finally resolves in the at the end of the book. 
And then there's his mentor who, you know, represents, we think, all that is good with, with, with women and with Nate's, more specifically with Nate's relationship with women. Tell us a little bit about the forthcoming book, as much as you're willing to and can. Well, I'm not. I can't talk too much about it because it's. I just turned in the rough draft, and um, I, I have no idea what the my editor's take is going to be. So it could it could change. And also, I don't. I tend not to talk about things in process. But what I can say is, it is Nate McCormick again, and he is in the Bay Area again, though he's not very happy about it. It should be out next year. We've been speaking with Joshua Spinogel. His new novel is Isolation Ward. Thanks for talking. Thanks so much, Rick. It was a lot of fun.